Good morning and happy Saturday for those of you that are new, welcome. And for those of you that are returning, welcome back to the Torque and Thrust Talk Show, episode number 12, Tis the Season. My name is Bill, and on today's show, we are talking about drone use in law enforcement, the top five disappointing games of 2023, and car trends for the future in 2024. Then we're going to learn some industry terms with jargon in a jiffy, help you build a pathway to success with Career Corner, live listener Q&A, and our discussion this week Christmas traditions from around the world. My co-host is fellow co-founder of the Three Green Simulations Group, retired NYC EMT and flight sim extraordinaire Tommy D of Level Flight Simulations. Good morning, Tommy. How are you doing today? I'm doing well, Bill. Good morning. How about yourself? I am doing well. Um, had an interesting trip this last week, uh, as you know, because I was texting you about it. Um, some low-vis operations. Uh, luckily, it was with the good captain, and uh, everything went according to plan. But some interesting this this week, uh, including some winter weather operations, we'll, which I'll go into a little bit later today. But what about you, Tommy? Uh, not a terrible week. Not a terrible week. Um, things were kind of winding down at work because they close at uh, 3 o'clock tomorrow. So we were prepping for that, getting the last okay, of the orders out and getting ready to shut okay. it down. I didn't realize you guys closed for the holidays. I thought you guys were open year-round. So is it like a short time that you guys shut down? It's or a short is it time. Like a- it'll, it'll go from 3 p.m. on Christmas Eve to 7 a.m. on the 26th. Okay, yeah. So that – wow, that is really short. I was going to say, as busy and as – big of a company uh that you guys are i figure because if it's not that then the next thing you know people are, are ordering stuff year-round right so i i figured it wouldn't shut down for very long well, so it systems will, will be all automatic so the ordering and everything goes through the actual okay. pulling and shipping won't start again until okay so there might be a, just a slight delay if you're ordering something yeah yeah and mo- okay. most people so- won't even see the delay Okay, I would say, so ordering some clothes for my, my day one cruise outfit, I'm going to have to wait a couple of days then, is what you're saying. <laughs> oh, you could actually order it today. It'll just be um, possibly delayed like a day. Starting off today, Tommy D is going to be talking a little bit about gaming news today. I'll be doing my aviation, and then Tommy will take over automotive. So to start the morning off, let's have Tommy talk about some gaming news. Thanks, Bill. The very first thing on gaming news is going to be a continuation of what I brought up last week, that Boeing PMDG 777. I got the email on Tuesday that the Boeing is now officially in beta testing. Uh, They're starting to work on the rendering engine with Microsoft Flight Simulator. So for those of you who aren't familiar, beta testing is when you're taking a product before it goes to market. And basically you make a list of bugs and you send it to the developers and they fix it. It's really that simple. They make a whole big drawn out thing about it. And I don't understand it, but I I guess people got to overcomplicate things. But so essentially the way PMDG does business, uh, there are actual type rated triple seven pilots that kind of like their side hustle is with PMDG. And they literally fly the plane around Microsoft Flight Simulator, X-Plane, Xbox, and they just report what's wrong with it. What's broken? You know, is it crashing to desktop? Is it, you know, you're not able to use LNAV or VNAV, things of that nature. So at the very beginning, you know, you're going to start off with a laundry list of things that are wrong with the aircraft. And then the developers can take it back and fix as they go along. So that's basically what's starting to go on now. So, Mr. Andazzo, two thumbs up. You are a man of your word. The next little uh, portion of the gaming news is the most failed releases, the top five failed release games of 2023. So coming in at number five is Wild Hearts. Uh, It's supposed to be a grand competitor of the Monster Hunter series. Um, it was collaborated with EA Sports, and this was more of an anime-type game, and uh, it just never took off. There's a lot of people that are in this world that are into anime, and I get it. Not my, personally my thing, but hey, um, it was Xbox Series X, and it never even made it to the PC platform. It, it just was a total flop. Number four was Crime Boss. I wonder what this was based at. And the one of the things that the article says is 
Um, Crime Boss is the perfect example of for what works in one game may not necessarily work or reflect for another. So the third was Forspoken. This was a series game. It was supposed to be open map. Uh, expectations were high for Xbox, PC, and eventually PS, but it just never came to fruition. After the initial release, apparently all their market research just went awry and the game wasn't as popular. It was plagued with a lot of mechanical problems um, and the quality was just not what they thought it was going to be. Number two was Redfall. Redfall um, was based off a game called Deathloop, which was actually a success. It was available on PC and console exclusively the Xbox. It was kind of a magical fantasy world RPG. Huge letdown, bad gameplay, and again, poor mechanics, which means you know your controller, your functions, your walking, and all that. And number one, rounding off, Gollum from the Lord of the Rings series, which was kind of surprising because normally you slap the name Lord of the Rings on something and it instantly does well because the, you know Lord of the Rings has a following that's almost as big as us Star Wars guys. Uh, Lord of the Rings made the top five of disappointment. Production quality to the overall gameplay, to the mechanics, was just a big letdown in general. Uh, it looked dated. It looked like they were using older technology per the article. I've personally never seen the game, but per the article, the graphics the graphics have looking older. So all of us now, you know, there are still people that like me up to a couple months ago had an 1800 series graphics card, but people that running now like two, three, 4,000 series NVIDIA graphics cards said it looked dated. It looks like the, it wasn't 1980 pixel, but it wasn't exactly the best and it didn't render very, very well, which me personally, I, I've played games like this and it also deals, it, it'll lag you. And there's nothing more frustrating for a gamer than lag. We all know that. We've talked about that before. But with that, that is the um, going to be the wrap-up on the gaming news for this week. Okay. Well, you know what's funny, though, is I have actually heard of Crime Boss. You were talking have you about really? That. Yeah, I did. But it wasn't good. It, it wasn't good stuff. Uh, but it's funny you're talking about, like, the mechanics and, like, the that's the stuff that's holding up these games. Made me think a lot about the uh, movie Polar Express. Have you seen that one where it was supposed last to last like night as a matter of fact and everything from here up on the characters doesn't move. <laughs> it's, it's the weirdest freaking thing. So I, that's what I was thinking when you were talking about that was like, Oh, the lack of mechanics and stuff. And I think probably the biggest problem is too, with these games is a lot of people are trying to rush them out there. Um, these, these independent development studios are rushing them out there to try to get them to be like lethal company where it's an independent game, but it's, and the graphics are, eh, but the gameplay is really good. I think they're trying to rush these out here. So they get like these huge, like, um, get popular very quick. Right. So in between yep. like the modern warfare, the free release in November, and then in December, you also had like the GTA stuff starting. So I think these studios are trying to release these games too quickly in order to be able to try to get their name in there before all these big name games come out. And we're starting to see the after effects of that because of the poor design and such. That's, exactly. that's personally what I them, think it is. I, I kind of agree with you on that. They want to get them to market. They want it, especially they want to get them released sometime between Halloween and just after Thanksgiving yeah. for the Christmas sales. Because think of it now, like you and I, if we found a new game on Steam, five minutes now from now, we're playing it. Well, and I also feel like everything's early access, and I feel like not everything should be early access. Like, for example, it you know it shouldn't be early access if your game is absolute garbage. I feel like you should take the time to develop it properly to give a semi-complete. And for me, I feel like early access should be like everything is literally done with the exception of like maybe the theme music or a section of a, a building that we're still working on making open map. It'll be available. You know what I mean? Um, 100% I agree. And also... The thing is, you have some of these smaller developers who are trying to be Ubisoft, you know, yeah. Infinity Ward, all of them. They're, they're trying to get their share of the IT and gaming pie, which, yeah. which is a huge pie because gaming, popularity of gaming, regardless of what platform it is that you play on, what your personal preferences to play, mm -hmm. you know, is massive. You know? Well, and I also think that they may be trying too hard to be Ubisoft, Activision, uh, EA Sports, stuff like that. Um, but with I feel like independent studios got to understand they just got to find their niche. It's kind of like this podcast, right? Um, this podcast, while it's been hugely successful in the past couple months since we've launched it in on, since October fifth, um, it's you know we're still growing. We're still trying to reach out. We're trying to find our niche. I mean, I think our niche is very 
set. It's pretty obvious. It's for gaming nerds. It's for transportation enthusiasts and auto motorheads, right? It's basically yeah. what this is about. Um, and people who just like enjoy, you know, random talk shows that talk about random stuff like our, our general, our general discussion topics. Um, but I feel like a lot of these games are trying also too hard to be like the big name bring, uh, big name, name brand games and they're losing themselves. So instead, rather than being patient, developing a good name and developing a specific niche, like for example, lethal company, lethal company has become huge because it's gone viral with some of the big streamers and gamers, uh, that have streamed on YouTube and Twitch. Um, and they have grown off of that, but that's because they initially released a good idea, a good, uh, I guess plot is the proper term, but for the game that they're playing. So I just, you know, if if any uh, independent software developers are out there, gamer developers out there, just take your time. Take your time to develop a, a, a semi-decent early release, and then I feel like the rest will come. So, well, uh, Tommy, thank you for the gaming update. We'll see Tommy here in just a second when he gives automotive news here. But for now, it is uh, my turn here to uh, talk about some aviation news this week. As the norm, um, I am a huge history person. So this week in aviation history, it's a big one, folks. December 17th, 1903. Not to mention it's my anniversary, not in 1903. I'm not that old. But December 17th of 1903 is a huge day in aviation. This includes... Um, the, one of the first flights ever, or what we call power-sustained flight. So the first controlled flight in a powered aircraft took place in North Carolina here in the United States on December 17th, 1903 in Kill Devil Hills, uh, Kitty Hawk, North Carolina. Uh, Wilbur and Orville Wright took turns piloting and monitoring uh, their flying machine in Kill Devil Hills. Um, Orville piloted the first flight, which is the famous one that we've seen. Um, it lasted just 12 seconds, and they only flew 120 feet. Now, that's the most common one that you hear about because that is the very first instance of sustained power flight but the they actually did up to four that day and the fourth and final flight of the day wilbur wright traveled 852 feet remaining airborne for almost a minute so 59 seconds and the rest is history i know that's kind of cliche to say but it is this is the the moment where what I do for a living became possible because of this instance. Now, I did do, like I said, I did have a previous podcast talking about uh, just specific aviation history. It's still out there. It's called Ace Aviation Communication and Education. There's only five episodes, but it goes decade by decade. Um, And if you go and listen to that, it breaks it down from pre-1903 to 1903 and past or beyond that. Um, But believe it or not, the... The first time that this happened or the flight happened, it wasn't that big of a deal as you might expect. In fact, in, in the entire world, there was only a total, I believe, of three articles that were written about it. It wasn't that big. The people just thought it was a gimmick. It wasn't until later on that the British actually were more invested in the airplane idea for military stuff. Um, the United States, for the longest time, were just like, yeah, no, we don't want to invest in it. Yeah, the military was like, yeah, no, we're good. Um, so, but if you want to hear more about that, this is just a brief kind of tidbit of uh, this week in aviation. But if you want to hear more about that, definitely go check out Aviation Communication Education on Spotify. It's my old podcast. It's about three or four years old, but it's more of a narrative storytelling type uh, podcast about the history of aviation. Now, on to more recent news, we are talking about uh, drones and law enforcement. Um, the article is How Do Police Departments Use Drones from Simple Flying's writer Andrew Cry. So drones have become a valuable asset for police departments, allowing them to perform tasks at a lower cost and assist surveillance and investigations. In the United States, over a thousand police departments already use drones, with at least one utilizing them for homicide investigations and officer-involved shootings. Police departments in other countries like the United Kingdom, Germany, South Korea also use uh, drones for various purposes. Um, And the biggest thing right now in terms of benefit is showing that there's a reduced cost compared to the use of manpower. So there seems to be a little more efficient, and you also don't have to pay a drone an hourly wage in order to be able to do law enforcement or to help with law enforcement. As of right now, the uh, United States, there's 1,172 departments in the United States using drones. Um, And the article noted that Korea right now, uh, actually since 2016, uh, uses drones for traffic enforcement crime scene survey and search and rescue so it it, there are some benefits to it but i know and i'll bring in tommy on this too because it's a kind of an opinion thing as well 
Now, I am a part one, part 107 commercial drone operator or UAS operator, um, and I do have my own drone. And this is actually a perfect time to address this because I, I used to fly it a lot in my neighborhood, um, over the streets, public areas, and stuff like that. I am a amateur um, hobby filmmaker on the side, too. And there was this one day, Tommy, where I was filming a shot. My wife was driving a car, our, our SUV, as part of the movie that we were trying to film, the little short film. Um, I wasn't flying over because I don't have that waiver for the FAA. I was flying behind the car, but high up, probably about 100 feet in the air with my drone. Uh, in accordance with all regulations, I had uh, permission from the local airport because it's a link area. So I had permission to fly in the airspace. I had radio com communication with my wife driving the vehicle. But anyway, so we're over this public street. Uh, the camera's pointed nearly straight down because it's behind the car, not over it, but just, just behind it. Um, and I'm just shooting this scene with my wife clearly over public streets and a Karen in my neighborhood walks out and goes, I don't want you filming my backyard. And I'm like, I'm not... I'm nowhere near your backyard. She was like two houses down on the other side of the street. I was like, I'm, I'm clearly, so I even showed her the, what we were doing. I showed her on my phone. I was like, so this is what I'm, and I, and I told her, by the way, I have authorization to use the airspace above your house. Like it's, and there's a, there's Supreme court where back when the LAPD used a helicopter in order to spot an illegal growing um, field in the, someone's backyard and use that as evidence against the person. Um, that Supreme case court or that supreme court case ruled that basically the airspace above your house is public use right because it's owned by the federal government you don't control the airspace above your house and if you have a fence you can't really be like well <laughs> the fence protects me no so the fence reasonable expectation of privacy is the fence right is only up to like six feet protecting you from people on the ground now if you're taking your drone and like flying it down into look into somebody's house right that's that's a different story but this whole i don't want drones flying over my house is a bunch of bs but anyways that was kind of a weird tangent to come back to what we were talking about with drone use in law enforcement is drone use in law enforcement a violation of privacy i personally don't think so what about you tommy i don't think so neither but there is always going to be the, like the privacy thing no matter what is always going to be one of the first arguments that comes because I know certain departments use drone tech, uh, drone technology to start mm -hmm. getting intelligence before they start any sort of a tactical operation. Right. Mm -hmm. You yeah. know, so I'm not going to put my 12 SWAT officers at risk unless I know as much as I can humanly know yeah. about the situation inside a structure before yeah. we start, you know, kicking doors and breaking windows. It, it's yeah. a huge, huge safety thing. Now, it is, and it, and it, and it, like you said, it gives them. It's a safety thing. It gives them a more of an idea of what's going to happen before they get into a serious situation. It's a better absolutely. surveillance tool. Because believe me, going into a situation, if I could find out within side of ten minutes where everybody is in the structure, what floor, what mm -hmm. corner they're hiding behind, I, that's a nice piece of the puzzle that I would like to have. You know, as far as privacy. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? These drones are all over the place. Even in my local airport, you know, I, I see drones all the time. And there have been some instances that um, some law enforcement type officials have knocked on some people's doors because you cannot, even though there's nothing going on at the airport, there's no departures, no arrivals. You just can't take your drone and fly over the threshold of the runway. Clearly, yes. yeah. you know, someone took notice and had an issue. Don't blame them. Well, and. And it's probably the tower um, because, you know, with the public access to drones, right? Because I could just like I bought my drone from um, Best Buy. It's pretty straightforward. You don't really have to have a license. And actually, you don't have to have a part 107 license to operate a drone or a, a UAS, an unmanned aerial system. Um, but if you want to operate it uh, commercially, receive money for it, be compensated for it, you do have to have a commercial license because it's considered an aerial vehicle. There is another Supreme Court case um where the faa proved and in the because of case law that the faa does have jurisdiction over uas systems like my drone uh, but yeah privacy wise like i said it's it's like if i'm flying on my commute out right and i take a picture of my house on the way out to chicago for work and i happen to catch um you know take pictures of other people's backyards from the airplane as i'm going out are you going to sue me Right. Or let's talk about uh, Google Maps. Right. Or Apple Maps, the satellite imagery where I can literally yeah. zoom in and see what you, what's in your backyard. Are you going to sue Google? No, it's it's the same exact thing. But 
the key word is reasonable expectation of privacy, right? Like I said, going back to the scenario, I said, if there's a drone hovering outside your window looking into your bedroom or into your house, yeah, that's illegal because that could be considered harassment because inside your home, you have a reasonable expectation of privacy. However, if, you know, for example, if you're out and just happen, the drone happens to fly over your house on the way to return to its home base or whatever it's called, that's not illegal. Even filming from 100 feet from a public street, like over a public street into somebody's backyard from a drone is not illegal. And I know there's a lot of people that are saying like the whole drone use in law enforcement is a violation of like privacy. It's not. It's, I mean, there's Supreme Court cases that say otherwise, just like a police helicopter can fly over and see you doing something illegal in your backyard and can call the police. Yeah, and uh, granted right now, I think a lot of it too is there might be, I don't want to say exploiting because that's not the proper term, but utilizing the, the grayness because drone stuff hasn't really, I think 2012, probably a decade it's been around where it really started coming up with the, the idea of law enforcement and who should regulate it and stuff like that in terms of unmanned aerial systems or drones. Um, so there is still a lot of gray area um, associated with it that I think law enforcement is utilizing. Uh, for example, in the state that I live in, there's only two federal laws, two or they might be state laws, that you have to comply with in order to fly a drone. Um, it's not to be over an open-air assembly of more than, I believe it's 20 people. Um, even though there's an FAA waiver, we can't do it in my state, and you can't be within 400 feet of a mental health facility. Those are the two things right now. And obviously, there's other federal stuff like national parks and stuff like that that you can't fly over uh, with a drone. But the thing is, is I choose to educate myself on that because obviously the nature of what I do being an airline pilot, I want to make sure I'm not violating the rules because that could come back to me and affect my career if I do something yeah. stupid. Just so where I live is within a certain it's close closer to my local airport where I'm in their in their airspace. So when I went to go fly my drone, it's called a link or low altitude alert and notification uh, system. Um, I basically used an application on my phone to file a flight plan with the FAA basically and tell them the expanse, like an area where I was going to be flying my drone, the maximum altitude, because there's a certain altitude, uh, like over my house, I think it's 400 feet. I would never fly my drone at 400 feet. That scares the daylights out of me because I could barely see it, but the maximum is 400 feet, but you tell them, Hey, I'm going to go no higher than 200 feet in this defined area. And as long as it's within limits, um, it'll send you an authorization, uh, on your phone. So you can show law enforcement if they show up and say, I'm good from this time to this time in this GPS coordinates. Um, that I'm authorized to fly my drone, and it'll send a notification to the air traffic control facility at my local airport to let them know that there's unmanned aerial systems happening, you know, three miles, let's say, west of the field, right? So they can tell people about it. And my drone, my DJI, will alert me when there is a man-powered aircraft nearby. It'll say, hey, this is here, and it'll ding it because of ADSB, so I know when it, where the aircraft is and know where to avoid it. It's it's an amazing system, but the problem is, is there's people out there that abuse it. So, well, maybe that'll you know what, Tommy? Let's we'll, we'll put a pin in that because that's something we can talk about. Um, I think next uh, next year when we're talking on our new episodes, uh, we can talk a little bit more about unmanned aerial systems and how to properly use them. But in this instance, for uh, law enforcement, I don't think they're doing anything wrong. It's not illegal. They're being more efficient, and honestly, I think it's the increase in safety being able to surveil because their drones are way cooler than mine. They they have like infrared, they have night vision, they have yeah. all sorts of things that help keep police officers and the public safe. That's something we could talk about a little bit more in the future before we start continuing on a tangent. So, before we do, uh, let's uh, hand it back over to Tommy to talk about uh, automotive news here. Uh, the 2024 trends. All yours, Tommy. Thank you, thank you, thank you. So the 2024 trends, like right, uh, just like with my gaming update, we're going to kind of start looking forward now to 2024. I got a uh, article that I had read from Ward's Auto, and it was all about um, cybersecurity and what's going to the predictions for 2024 as far as computerization inside your vehicle. Because let's face it. All of us who have vehicles, we have more computer space than what NASA had to launch the Saturn rockets. And, you know, I know personally, my car has like five different computers in it, but there's been a lot of competition. Now, those of us who remember trying to get vehicles during the pandemic phase, 
we couldn't get them. And that was because of the computer chips that were needed to do certain functions. And this leads right into number one. The market pressure yields a shorter automotive development cycle. Right now, the average automotive development cycle for computer chips is five to seven years. You know, that, that's how old it is. So technology that is being done, we'll call it Tuesday since it's a holiday weekend, is going to be in vehicles for five to seven years. You know, that's how long it takes to get them to market. Now, silicone software and testing validation and all that, some of the bigger firms are trying to get that down to three to five years. That's their big end goal. But that's a huge, huge gap, especially when you're talking, they're inventing technology or they're improving current technology. But let's face it, ladies and gentlemen, people are always going to look to invent, reinvent the wheel. Um, centralized zonal architecture will begin to come online. So central zoning architecture for the vehicles, it's a mixture of new applications and evolving systems in the architecture of the vehicle. That's the way they mean. And one of the examples they give is the amplification of AI inside the vehicles. You know, it will increase complexity and adopt leading edge automotive semiconductor technologies at seven, five and three nautical miles, which is pretty interesting because Bill deals with stuff like this all the time. Now he's going to have to deal with it when he's driving home after his workday or driving too. you're going to it's you're going to see like a big change. And I believe this is it was alluding to the article to the adaptive um, cruise control that's currently in vehicles, but it didn't specifically come out and say that uh, new entrance to automotive silicone designs call for consulting services. So if I develop the technology that is going to be useful for the automotive industry, whether it's a safety or something new um i have to have a consultant come in and help me do the work and then i'll be able to present it to the automotive industry that's basically what they're doing they're throwing in the middleman and that's because you have all these developers right you have meta apple um aws which is the amazon web service they're all looking for chip development to go into the automotive industry in the future because quite frankly it's a cash cow right if i could develop a chip you know, this little thing that cost me a hundred bucks to put on a circuit board in a vehicle. And in turn, that one vehicle is going to put $15,000 in my pocket. Bring it, you know, it, it, capitalism at its very, very finest. But there are other companies that are coming in, Riven, BYD Auto, Xpeng. They're all trying to get into this chip design game. Now, it's infinite. The, the way a chip can be designed for what it can do, it, it's infinite because it's a computer and it's going it's going to do what you program it to do so the only thing that really is the market and your imagination is where the parameters are on that and i find that very interesting because bill and i were just talking about this as far as gaming where developers are, are pushing a product out there to make their slice of the pie this is also being mirrored in the automotive industry you know which Hey, listen, if a new developer comes in and they came up with a better tire and they said, hey, these triangle tires are going to be better than the round ones as far as, you know, your stability, your handling, your fuel efficiency and all that. All right, show me the data. Let's see it. But there's the one thing they also cite is there's just simply not enough chip designers for the amount of vehicles that are being produced per annum. And I get that. And the very last part of this article is believe it or not the un has jumped in on this so un beginning july 1st of 2024 is un regulation 155 and this is all about cybersecurity for your personal vehicles because let's face it how many people around have smart watches smart cars you know tesla being the one right with the smart car where you could talk to your watch and you know does the batman thing and drives to you you know, and that's been doing for a couple, but the threat analysis and risk assessment program or the Tara, as they call it. And I've known that from uh, tactical side of things, because there's always a risk analysis. It's going to be a legally binding uh, thing with car manufacturers. So like me personally, I don't kind of throw my name into everything like flight sim wise, my real name and everything is out there. But for like my vehicle, there's an alias. But so now what they want to do is they want to have a certain sort of encryption standard to protect your personal information from being hacked. 
uh, through your vehicle. Because let's face it, I know Bill does. I know I do. My phone is paired to my car. Now, I don't keep anything. I don't want the, you know, to be known to go out that's uh, in my cell phone. But, you know, some people do. I mean, I've, I know people who keep their medication and all their personal medical information on their cell phone, which from the EMS standpoint, that's awesome. Because all I got to do is flip through a couple pages and I got all the information I need about your history and what medications you take. But to someone that has less than ideal intentions, that could be an issue. But that's what we're looking forward to in 2024. A lot of AI and um, now we're starting to bring computer cybersecurity and making it a big issue to the point that the UN in New York raised their eye on this. So what do you think about that, Bill? Um, I, well, first of all, cool. I'm super excited because I think something that we've seen in the past couple of years, um, is that more independent car makers are entering, especially here in the United States. Uh, cause before Tesla, it was the standard GM, Chevy, Ford, um, Chrysler, Dodge, you know, but now we're mm-hmm. starting to see a lot of independent smart cars and stuff starting to come in. So it's nice to see that trend moving that way, but also good that we're thinking about security because with every, electrical man-made thing especially something that connects to the internet there's always that risk that something security wise could happen to it so i'm glad they're definitely absolutely um so uh but with that it's time to move on to our favorite segment of the show it is time for you ready for it tommy jargon in a jiffy already so jargon in a jiffy for those of you that have never watched the show or maybe just maybe you forgot because I forget sometimes. Jargon in a jiffy is a word game where Tommy and I take terms from our careers, uh, medical field or com- uh, Tommy's current field or my airline career, um, and we put it into a sentence and have the other host try to guess what it means. Uh, and this is more so you can learn about our different terms and terminology that we use uh, in our industry. Because honestly, it could seem... A little intimidating if you're not familiar with what we're talking about so did you want to start this one tommy or do you want me to start this no one? no because you see i am in the habit of not looking at your term okay but so what do you want today me? uh today i looked at it so i i am how dare I, you i need to sir? hear your sentence i would like you to go first how dare you sir <sighs> gotta make it a hard one now no i'm just kidding um so my word for today or a phrase or uh acronym is rvr so rvr the sentence is the rvr had to be at least 800 feet for us to be able to depart spokane last night i'm sorry 500 feet at least 500 feet to be accurate and that's going to be your minimums your minimum takeoff clearance i don't know uh, uh, I'm going to hold you to a higher standard because you looked at it, Tommy. What does RVR stand for, though? I'm not looking for the def- – what does RVR stand Is for? Is it required visual reference? Nope. It sounded good, though. Uh, I'm going to get Tommy. I'm going to get Tommy. I'm gonna yeah, get I think Tommy. you're going to get me this week. Uh, I had a, I'm throwing you – remember I softballed the last two, right? They were like kitty T-ball where I let you wrong, run the wrong way around the bases. But yes, this week yes, – yes. I'm yeah, this week I'm actually, I'm actually thinking hard, too, because you know what? My medical mind is punching me right in the back of the head because RVR is something completely different in my industry. Is that the respiratory? No, uh, it actually has to do with the heart. Um, oh, okay. No, RVR. so this – you're right. It has to do with minimums. Your departure minimums what, as far as that. Well, it could also be approach minimums too. I'll go over that in a second. But I'm asking you what it specifically stands for, because this—that's harder than guessing I'm, what it means. That's now you see this is where my block is coming because I want to say something and it is so not it. Um, I mean, try it. You may, you could be wrong. That is definitely not rapid ventricular response. No, uh, uh, no, that's nope. That would be what we call close. a medical emergency. Yeah, that's not a. <laughs> it's not the same thing. <laughs> Uh, required visual reference did i say that i said that you already said that yeah that's not a that's not a thing i mean it's no. kind of it, but that's not an actual acronym well i mean it's a thing now we just put it out there in the universe eh, uh, yeah far aim probably won't agree with you but <laughs> wow well, this is a standard this this isn't jargon this is actually standard is a standard acronym that is has and a I, standard definition. the thing is in ground school i know i've heard this 
you might not have heard it in private though this is not this is honestly you don't really use rvr until you get to the airlines rvr because oh, okay. everything rvr so about not remembering yeah rvr is more of um low visibility stuff uh so it, it only comes out during low visibility stuff if that yeah, like you just dealt with this week correct going into spokane i'll talk about that here in a second uh, you got me you got me on okay. this one rvr stands for runway visual range runway visual range visual range so, yeah so rvr is there's a it's called a transmissionometer transmissionometer i'm her- terrible at saying that but basically there's a little uh laser gun at one end of the runway and a receiver further down and it shoots a laser horizontally and it measures how much of that laser gets to the receiver and that determines either in meter or in feet how much visibility you have there's three usually there's a um touchdown rollout or mid and rollout so three different spots across the runway where it'll measure the visibility um the reason this like i said is visi- uh, mostly visibility is in like half mile quarter mile but when it gets really low visibility our low visibility approaches are based off rvr runway visual range for spokane this is why I, I, i'm using it this week uh this week going into spokane washington it was a lot of fog you know pacific northwest um indefinite ceilings vertical visibility of 100 to 200 feet rvr was quarter mile or less that's usually cat two or three um but we did a cat three just to be safe um and a cat three for that runway minimum rvr was 300 feet so all we needed well six six and three is technically what we needed per our minimums um but basically that means that the first half of the runway has to be at least 600 feet of visibility second half and the last the rollout the last part of it can be 300 but that's what rvr is runway visual range is the measurement of visibility by those transmission transmissionometers um in feet or meters it, sometimes it can be meters as well but that's what it is that's what rvr is. so when we're referring to rvr rvr 300 500 600 and in my sentence it's also used for takeoff because takeoff for that runway that we took off on the red eye um, minimum RVR for us to be able to depart safely was five. So 500 feet. We had 800 feet of visibility. So not much more. And when I tell you it was 800 feet, it was 800 feet. I counted the lights because um, the touchdown zone was lit up. So, you know, that's a thousand feet. So if you can see mm-hmm. the full touchdown zone, you know, that's a thousand feet. Runway stripes are about uh, 200 feet uh, between uh, like one stripe in a space is 200 feet or runway lights are spaced out a certain amount and I can count the the runway lights to figure out how much visibility we have. Um, and it was low vis. It was 800 RVR, like no kidding, 800 feet. So gotcha, Tommy. RVR, runway you vision. That was a 15 out of 10 today. So mine, I think mine might be a little bit of a, a lob pitch. It's um, okay. It's a bubblegum rotator. And this actually does not come from my industry. It comes from law enforcement. It comes from. It will make sense in this. Um, I'm I, the sentence that I have. It's gonna make very much sense. But you so, said it comes from law enforcement. Did you say law. Mm-hmm. Law enforcement. Yep. Do I say law? I think law. you've been living uh, in Pennsylvania. Yeah, the police. Did you say lure? I heard no, I said law enforcement. I, I might have. I mean, I've been drinking a lot of coffee. <laughs> I was gonna, I was gonna say, and you also have been living in five thirty. So in Pennsylvania, I keep hearing Lar, and I'm like, Lar, you've been living in Pennsylvania too long, my friend. I have. I'm sorry, Pennsylvania. Pennsylvania. All right, buddy. All right, go ahead. Go ahead with the. uh, the My sentence sentence is: I was at the police museum and I saw a cruiser with the bubblegum rotator. (laughs) You caught yourself when you said saw. You said Sarah uh, saw. Yeah, probably. (laughs) I, I caught it. I caught it. Okay. Um, so you went to the police museum and you saw it with the bubblegum rotator. Is that the big old fashion light? The, yeah, yep. that just, it just sat yeah, on with the, the bubblegum light and we yep. would have the two yeah. lights behind a red lens and it would just rotate and just rotate. Yeah. Well, you know, who still has that Michigan state police. They Do have they really the st- they got the bubblegum stu- stupidest looking police cars I've ever seen. Dodge chargers with the bubblegum thing. Just one sitting right on top of the vehicle. It's the stupidest. Stupidest thing I've ever seen. It, have you seen it, Tommy? Here, let me see if I can look it up. So you guys can see it right there. <laughs> uh, it's so bad. Uh-oh, go back. That's, yeah, right there, because that's what you're talking about, right? Yep, that's it. That's the bubblegum bu- bubble light. And, 
and when and then when they um <laughs> and when they have this thing at the front too where it lights up it says state police stop so like as you're driving along and you look over you can see the hood it says state stop look how dumb this looks though i'm sorry michigan state police all respect to all law enforcement but are you serious well it's the good thing is the didn't design the car that's true that's true i mean even their emblem looks good right and yeah. you got this charger which is a mean looking law enforcement vehicle even the blue is nice like that's a nice yep. blue and then you got this dumb thing sitting at the top well you know what it is too i think what they're doing is um just paying respect to their heritage because at one point every police car had that and had that. it got what? nicknamed the bubblegum light because it looks like a bubblegum machine like you would see outside the pharmacy yeah so but that you're right that was it took me a second then you mentioned it was for law enforcement and i was like wait a second i think i know and then you mentioned the museum and i was like okay he's talking about like yeah because well if i would have known about the michigan state police i was uh up to about 30 seconds ago i was only under the impression that you can only see them at museums nowadays no michigan yeah michigan as soon as you said it i was like michigan state police i know because i did doj rp and stuff so like i am kind of a buff going back to your word from last week on last week's episode um i'm a kind of a law enforcement buff in terms of history and like cars and like interceptor units and stuff like that um so yeah i remember coming across michigan state uh police and going you got to be kidding me there's no way that they're putting this on top of like nude ford police interceptor units like explorers tauruses chargers i'm just like are you you got to be kidding me like that is unbelievable that they but i mean like you said it's probably an ode to their heritage but it just to me yeah. it looks ridiculous it looks absolutely it, it ridiculous. like not for nothing those hemis look like they should be slick units anyway but anyway so that is jargon in a jiffy very good job tommy um both good we, we got good subject you know we stumped you and i showed you a car that you didn't know existed so <laughs> i think we true. both learned yeah i think we both learned uh something from that so up next is a uh, career corner where Tommy and I talk a little bit about how to get from point A to point B in terms of our career. Tommy being a medical professional for 32 years uh, in NYC and a current EMT, uh, certified EMT, and me being an airline pilot. So up first, Tommy uh, is going to be talking about, I think we're into week, is it week nine now? I think week it's nine, week nine. Yeah, yeah, we are rapidly okay. going into week nine. Yep. So week nine of EMT training. Take it away, Tommy. Thank you. Well, week nine, ladies and gentlemen, and kitties of all ages. The fun is over. We're done with fun. We're going to start our introdu introduction into medical emergencies. Now, it doesn't matter if you volunteer. It doesn't matter if you're paid career. It, this is going to be 90 to 92% of your patient contact. It's going to be on the medical aspect of things. We're going to start introducing you to all the different systems. as kind of like a prelude to what Bill's going to be doing. But the body, just like a machine, has a lot of different systems in it. You have the respiratory system, cardiovascular, neurological, endocrine, and all these big fancy names that you're going to find as you go along aren't all that f And they're fancy words, but they have very, very common um, names. And that's one thing with the medical field. The medical field just absolutely loves to throw difficult names at very very simple things but generally we start with the respiratory system because as you have no now you should know by memory on your skill sheets for patient assessment i gave you guys a break from that last week abc airway breathing circulation right so the airway and your breathing the first two steps on those skill sheets for your for your assessment is all about airway and breathing so it makes sense we start with the respiratory system but the way, not only do we do the anatomy and physiology very in depth, uh, we're going to show you what actually happens. Like when you get down to the molecular level in the bottom of the lungs, and there's a certain enzyme that the word is this long that actually exchanges oxygenated for blood that's not oxygenated or deoxygenated, as we call it in the field. The name of that enzyme is acetylcholinesterase. Just a really, really big, long word that people get scared of and there's absolutely no reason to be. It's just simply an enzyme. And we're going to spend quite a bit of time on this. We're going to go from respiratory to cardiovascular because one of the things is uh, 
that's your heart. If you think of it in terms of a car, your heart is the carburetor. It's the reason why, oh, well, fuel injection system now. But everything that goes on goes on because of your brain and your heart. Those are the two most um, predominant organs. The two, all your organs are important, but those two are the workhorses. So the most complex computer on the face of the earth, the human brain, and the workhorse of the body, the heart. And we're going to spend ample time on everything. There's going to be a lot of quizzing, a lot of reading, and a lot of memorization. So with that, Bill, we, we uh, concluded week nine. All right. Well, thank you, Tommy, for uh, week number nine of EMT training. And now I will be, mine's a little bit shorter. Um, so I will be talking about procedures training. Uh, so if you remember, we talked a little bit about it last week. We're now in our airline training class. We've gone through basic indoc, which is basically an introduction to the company. And now, uh, and I'm sorry, and then last week we talked about, in the previous episode, we talked about systems training, which is just an overall kind of uh, general a studying of each individual aircraft system that you have to know because when you become an airline pilot you're flying one type of airplane and you're going to need to know the ins and outs of that one airplane specifically so that's what they're training you and remember at the end of that you'll be taking a written test called a knowledge validation that'll basically test and make sure you know your knowledge about your systems so once you complete that phase we're now onto what's called the procedures phase and just like it sounds we're talking about procedures so it's a very building block sort of way. You're going to start at the gate, basically cold and dark, which means in our industry, cold and dark means the airplane is completely turned off, has no power to it. So they're going to teach you from point A or more like coach you through it because at that point you should have already studied everything in terms of procedures and profiles. Um, but they're going to coach you and make sure you know how to get the airplane from cold and dark to get ready to push off the gate. We have these things called flows and profiles. So flows is a specific pattern that we move about the cockpit or flight deck in order to set switches in a specific way in order to do something. Then once those flows are done, then we do what's called a checklist to verify that we put the switches in the correct way. This is the most efficient way to do checklists, uh, especially in the flight deck environment. For example... When I first come up to the 737, if it's cold and dark, there are specific things that I do when I walk through. This is called the pre-flight checklist, or we like to call it the rainbow flow because it goes it's a flow from the left lower side of the cockpit all the way over to the right lower side of the cockpit. That is a flow. That is an example of a flow. I do this without looking at a checklist. It is just practice. So that is one of the first things that you're going to be going over when you're in procedures. Then you just kind of build on top of that. You just keep building on top. And then the next thing is going to be um, the pre-flight flow where you sit down in your seat after you've done the walk around and initialize the flight uh, computer system. And you're going to go through the uh, starting for me, it starts with the oxygen, then the window, and then I go overhead. And there's a whole flow and pattern that I do that I touch pretty much every switch. Then once we get done briefing and stuff, then the captain and I go through what's called a pre-flight checklist in order to make sure all those switches are in a proper place. And then from there, we do a before push checklist and there's a poor push flow. There's an after flow and stuff like that that is all procedures is uh, most of the time you're either going to be in what's called a paper trainer which is a paper mock-up version of the flight deck that you're going to be flying in where you can just point and practice pushing other companies have touch screens at my current company we were in a non-motion flight simulator called a ftd or flight training device um, which had actual movable switches which i loved so that's where we practice and by the end of that what you're going to be doing is you're going to be going from cold and dark at a airport to another airport point b in the sim doing stuff like sims uh, or i'm sorry doing like approaches and stuff like that and then shutting down and going cold and dark at the next airport on top of that you'll also be learning what's called profile so that's how you do a takeoff how you do a landing how you do an ils how you do a localized approach how you do all the procedures required because everything is standardized all the callouts are standardized it's all standardized, and that's where profiles and flows come from. So that's what you're doing during procedures validation, or excuse me, during the procedures phase. Then at the end of it, guess what? Yes, there's going to be a validation or a examination of your skills before you move on to the actual full motion sim portion, which we'll go to next week. So at the end of all this, you'll do a procedures validation, which they evaluate your ability to do your flows, profiles, and checklist. Uh, within you know parameters uh, such as you know the standardized parameters for the company make sure everything is done correctly and then you move on to the next phase but that's pretty much it it's very straightforward um, like I said airline training is like drinking from a fire hose but they do 
they do organize it so that you're just taking chunks out at a time. So that's what this this week is. What we're talking about is procedures, validations, profiles, and flows, and the procedures validation. Um, so with that, Tommy and I will transition to our next favorite uh, segment of the school of the show here, uh, viewer Q and A. This is where Tommy and I are able to answer questions from you all. So if you do have any questions whatsoever you can ask them in our live chats uh whether it be on youtube kick twitch uh we have them here in front of us uh if you have a question after the fact you can go to our discord server which is the qr code you see here completely free to join no subscription and actually the honest honest way to get to tom and i more directly is through this uh but there's also a channel and category in there where you can put questions in there so we can answer your questions on the next live show uh, for right now, the only one I see, uh, let's see, Snowy uh, as asking us, what do we think new cars will look like in five years? Um, good question, Snowy. I honestly don't know because um, we've seen the Cybertruck, even though it, it looks horrible. Um, we're seeing a lot of electric cars and different like s- style stuff. So I honestly don't know. What do you think, Tommy? Um. Yeah, I'm with you. I really don't have much of a clue on that. I think one of the things that we're going to see is aerodynamics, you know, more aerodynamic for fuel economy and pushing through the wind and stuff like that. You know, because if you look yeah. back, look at the Plymouths of 1970 <laughs> compared to the Chevys of 2023. Yeah, I think we're seeing, yeah, we're going to see more streamlined stuff Mm -hmm. i think we'll we'll see stuff that's pushing more towards aerodynamics and no longer fuel efficiency but battery efficiency with the new electric cars that are coming because aerodynamics plays a huge role in battery change and stuff like that so yeah um so if we don't have any more questions then we'll move on to our another favorite our favorite part is our weekly discussion topic so this episode is going to be our last episode of this year Uh, so we'll see you next year because tommy and i I've agreed that we want to take the time off to celebrate the holidays with the family, especially like me. I don't get to be home all the time. Um, so we're, we're going to take this time to celebrate um, as well as meet up and pitch some new ideas for the show for next year because uh, Tom and I have some ideas in the work to help improve the show as well. Um, so we'll, we'll, we'll be taking a couple week breaks. But this is uh, our weekly discussion topic is be Christmas around the world because the episode is called Tis the Season. So Tommy and I are going to be talking about our family traditions that we've had um, for Christmas. And then we're going to talk about a couple of different things from around the world. I have an article that talks about different traditions from around the world that are pretty, pretty actual interesting. There's some interesting ones that I was reading. So um, Tommy, I'll, I'll go and start off because I know you have an interesting one um, that you want to talk about growing up. Mine is very basic. Um, I don't want to say they're even trend, uh, traditions. You know, I, Christmas for me growing up is I'd get up early, right? Because I had to sleep because Santa Claus doesn't deliver presents to kids who are awake right. waiting for him. Because otherwise you're going to get dusted in the face. Um, and I can attest to this. Um, I haven't been dusted personally, um, but I've had friends that have been dusted and it's not a good thing. Um, and for those of you that don't know, airline pilots that are working over the holidays are also working for the big guy in red. Um, I can't go too much into it. It is classified information. I can't tell you a whole lot about it, but um, we are told about that. We got to be careful about his whereabouts and stuff like that. That's why NORAD tracks him and not us, but we are aware that he's in the air. I've seen him a couple of times flying as well. It's pretty cool. Um, so if you are flying around during the holidays, def- definitely take a look out your window, especially on Christmas Eve. You might be able to see him. But anyways, going back to being dusted, I've never been dusted. I was always, I, I didn't want to not get my presents. So, I usually would wake up super early, like five or six in the morning and make sure there was a little bit of sunlight coming up. Cause I knew if it wasn't dark, there wasn't a possibility of me getting dusted. It sounds like I'm, that sounds really bad when I say getting dusted. It's either <laughs> like, like whacked is what it sounds like. That's not what I'm yeah, talking about. Yeah. When, when Santa, Santa sprinkles the dust to make you go to sleep from the Sandman. Um, so I would always wake up. Um, I was always the first one up. So I wouldn't rush down because I didn't want to wake up my parents or I didn't want to wake up my brother. So I would wait. I would wait until I could hear my parents getting ready. And then I would rush down. And then I would patiently wait because I didn't want to, if I got something fragile, I didn't want to break it by like shaking it. Right. So I would just sit there and wait for my parents to come down. And the first thing we always did, and this was something that was kind of different, I think, from other people, is we didn't open gifts right away. I think we opened like one or two. 
um, main, actually from Santa. I think that's what we first opened was from Santa Claus. Um, and then we would have a family breakfast. And my mom would make this huge spread um, that we would literally eat on throughout the day. Um, so it was literally breakfast all day, which was awesome. I mean, pancakes on Christmas afternoon is amazing. Um, and then we would go back and open up the different presents and then obviously play with them throughout the day. But that was pretty much my tradition. Nothing really super special, but I think that's something unique about it is that we would only do one or two presents first. Then we would eat breakfast. It wasn't like we would do that the or um, have different meals throughout the day. It was just a huge breakfast that we ate throughout the day. Um, and that was pretty much my tradition. So, like I said, nothing too special on my end, but that's something that I always remember growing up. So what about you, Tommy? So mine, well, breakfast all day on Christmas. That is really, really cool. I mean, if was I was good. your next door neighbor, I'd be over there. But It was good. My, my mom's an excellent cook. I love breakfast. Um, mine, my family uh, did the very, I don't want to call it traditional because it, it's more Italian American. It started mm-hmm. in Italy, but it was more Italian American. It was the feast of the seven fish, right? And the Viglia de Natale, which is the vigil of Christmas. Uh, I don't know why we couldn't call it Christmas Eve, but they called it a vigil because there was in the Italian and the Italian Italian American realm of it. There was always a religious backing. Right. And it, it was to celebrate the arrival of the wise men. That that's what it was. And gotcha. now my my family on both my sides is absolutely huge. And there was always more than seven, but there was always a minimum of seven different fish. You know, whether it was bakala, which is cod. It, it, it's a uh, okay. salt pork cod um kalama um clams uh crab legs uh flounder fillet or whatever fillet they were able to get because i remember as a kid my father stomping around at three o'clock in the morning on christmas eve being picked up by my uncle Vito, and they would head to manhattan to the fulton fish market where you could literally buy that morning's catch right off the back of the boat years ago like in the 70s and 80s and my grandmother and all of my aunts would be at my aunt Flo's house because that's where it was and they would do nothing but cook all day and we would just come together as a family and about 11 o'clock we would start exchanging gifts with everyone and battling the carb coma you you wouldn't think but you know when you eat your weight in seafood you still feel it you know you still feel that Put the football game on. I'm done. Yeah. Know, because on Christmas Day, you were just with your immediate family. Now, if yeah. family filtered in and out, but for the most part, um, everyone respected each other's space, especially who had little kids. Because I even did it with my children. I, I'm not going to take the, the kids away from their, yeah. you know, what yeah. Santa brought them. You know, they want to stay home and play, and and everyone got that, and that's the way it was. The tradition itself actually started in southern Italy, where um, most of the income that would come into southern Italy was from commercial fishing. So coming from somebody who absolutely despises seafood, I well, <laughs> part of it's because I grew up in El Paso and there was no fresh seafood around. My my fresh seafood was freaking Long John Silver's. So it's I it, I got ruined. Seafood got ruined early on for me. So I'm not too keen on that. And uh, as a matter of fact, I, did, I can't even tell you seven different types of fish. I can tell you cod. I can tell you salmon, uh, catfish. Uh, and then I ca- I've caught brim a couple times. Okay. And bass. I get, I'm getting there. You know, bass, yeah. uh, what else is there? But not the ones that you were talking about. Like that. So I, th- I think that's cool. Even though I don't like seafood, I think it's an interesting tradition. Um, seafood on Christmas, I would have never expected. I, Tommy was telling me a little bit before the show about it, and I'm sitting there going, "Well, we, we did seafood? have some pasta. There was, there was pasta involved too, because there was always the two types of linguine." That being said, let's talk a little bit about Christmas from around the world. This comes from Homes.com. It's just an article I found uh, talking about the different traditions. Um, and you know, just to keep in mind, we're not being narrow-minded. It's just that Tommy and I celebrate Christmas, so it's something that we have more knowledge and experience talking about but there are other holidays that are non 
Christmas slash Christian out there that are, you know, celebrated like Kwanzaa, uh, Hanukkah and stuff like that. Um, so we're not discounting that. We're just, we're talking about what we know. Um, so when we're talking about this, we're talking about countries around the world that celebrate Christmas. So if we're not mentioning a country that's, uh, that doesn't celebrate it, that's why it's because we're specifically talking about Christmas. Um, so first Australia, uh, is basically it's, it's from England, right? As a lot of it's colonized and stuff from, uh, from the English. So it's a lot of the same traditions. The only difference is in Australia is that it's warm because they're on the opposite side of the earth than we are. So rather than having like feast indoors and enjoying like a warm cup of cocoa, they're outside having beach days and sometimes like barbecues because to them, their Christmas is summer and our summer or their summer is cold per se at that time of year because they are literally on the opposite side of the world. <laughs> so it is a little bit different where it's, it's more like a climate thing that changes it. In Serbia, I love this one. You're going to love this one too, Tommy. So in Serbia... Serbians have an unusual way of celebrating Christmas. Two Sundays before Christmas, the kids tie up their mother, and she then has to pay her own ransom with gifts in order to be freed. A week later, it's Dad's turn to purchase his freedom with presents. Obviously, <laughs> it's it's in fun. They don't actually like ransom their mom and dad. But the picture that I have here is uh, it looks like their mom is wrapped up in. Uh, it looks like Christmas decorations, like garland yeah. and like Christmas lights. And then uh, they're, they're throwing, it looks like styrofoam or like fake snow. Yeah, um, like the styrofoam think, popcorn. Yeah, and I think it's just absolutely hilarious that uh, they have to pay their way, uh, their own ransom with, with gifts. I think that's a really cool tradition. Uh, something, once again, I didn't know existed, but I thought that was pretty cool. Uh, the next one is uh, Mexico, which some of this I do know growing up in El Paso. A lot of this, some of this tradition kind of was in El Paso because El Paso had a lot of Hispanic culture. Uh, but Christmas in Mexico is a delicious affair. It was. In the weeks leading up to the holiday, richly decorated merchant booths are erected in the main plazas of every city. They sell handcrafted goods, fresh flowers, and mouth-watering treats for every description. When Christmas arrives, the Mexican people reenact the bill events leading to up to the birth of baby Jesus. Uh, for nine days, pilgrims search for shelter until they reach the home with the nativity scene. And when they finally arrive, it's time to celebrate. There's food, drinks, and a piñata. Piñatas, a lot of people just assume it's for um, for birthdays, but there's always piñatas. There's piñatas for every special um, occasion. Germany. Oh, this is one of my favorites. Um, Germany, Christmas trees have been used to celebrate the season since the Middle Ages. Fun fact. History Channel has a show called The History of Christmas. It is awesome to watch because Christmas isn't just a Christian holiday. Christmas actually takes a lot from the pagans and the, the Germanic tradition of the tree. Um, it actually uh, it spans from that. So it's, it's interesting. Definitely go watch that about the history of Christmas, how we adopted a lot of stuff from other cultures and religions. But anyway, so in Germany, Christmas trees have been used to celebrate the season since the Middle Ages. Germany is famous for its Christmas markets and especially for the hand-blown glass ornaments that are sold in them. This is my favorite part, Tommy. I love this part. If you've been naughty, though, beware. You don't get a lump of coal in Germany. German Santa has a surly pal named Krampus. This ragged horned monster punches bad kids by giving them a birch. They actually have full-on parades. I've seen these where people dress up as Krampus. And what it's talking about a birch is just like, um, like almost like palm leaves that are like loosely tied together, right? Mm -hmm. But, you know, we're told if we're naughty, right, we don't get what we ask Santa Claus for. We get a lump of coal, right? Right. Yep. But their tradition is they probably still get a lump of coal because obviously Santa Claus is tries to be, I feel like, is try to equal, but their tradition is also telling their kids that they're going to be taken away by Krampus, which is this horned creature who takes away naughty kids. That I think that's cool. And some of the costumes that come up is just really cool. So that's that's one of my personal favorites is Germany. Um, and then in India, there are too many, uh, aren't too many evergreen trees in India, so Christmas celebrants decorate mango or banana trees instead. Many people also decorate their own homes with mango leaves at a place uh, and place little oil lamps on roofs and walls. That's pretty cool. That's actually pretty cool. Uh, let's see. Japan In Japan, the Christmas holiday may have its roots elsewhere, but the Japanese have enthousi enthusiastically embraced the Western import. Uh, they exchange gifts, sing carols, eat turkey, and erect community Christmas trees. The patron saint of Japanese Christmas is... Uh, I'm sorry if I butcher this. Hote Osho? Uh, Osho? 
Uh, he looks like a Buddhist monk, but he has eyes on the back of his head, so don't think he can get away with any mischief beyond his back. Hoteo Osho sees all. Um, so what we're seeing is across all cultures is people call Santa Claus a different thing, but it is Santa Claus. It's it's uh, a person who delivers gifts and punishes the naughty. It's basically, but each each culture had, calls it a little bit different. And see, in Norway, every year, Norway sends a giant Christmas tree to the United Kingdom uh, in order to thank them for their assistance during World War II. Uh, back at home, Norwegians are celebrating by exchanging gifts, drinking beer, or going door-to-door disguised as singing goats, which is a practice called uh, jewel-buking. <laughs> okay. okay. Uh, and then in Ukraine, I like this one. This is interesting. In Ukraine, uh, legends tell of a poor widow who couldn't afford to decorate her family's Christmas tree. The local spiders took pity on the family and decorated the tree w- uh, in spider webs of pure gold and silver, making the family wealthy for life. And that is why U- Ukrainians decorate their Christmas trees in fake spider webs. And that's all that the article is. There's probably many more. But if you guys, uh, any listeners or viewers, if you guys have any interesting uh christmas uh traditions you want to let us know just let us know down in the comments uh you can email us i have captain bill official at gmail.com and tommy has level of flight simulations at gmail.com let us know because traditions are far and wide and vary amongst people as we just saw here so but with that folks we will begin to uh, wrap up this show once again uh that concludes episode number 12 it is the season and we thank you all for joining us and hope you enjoyed the talk show if you want to stay up to date with the show and industry news follow us on twitter at torque in thrust ts so that's torque the letter in thrust ts it's down in the ticker tape definitely follow us there um you can also follow tommy and i uh at on youtube twitch and tiktok at captain bill official and tommy is at level flight simulations if you like to save the show for on the go entertainment and news follow and turn on notifications for the talk show on spotify apple Podcasts, and iHeartRadio. we'll be live on youtube twitch and twitter next year so january 11th 2024 which is i believe a thursday is going to be our first episode of next year and we can't thank you enough for joining us this past couple months on this show you guys have made this year and this first couple months of the show absolutely amazing and we do appreciate you all joining in and interacting with us and we cannot wait for what the future has in store for this show so on behalf of the torque and thrust talk show i'm bill i'm tommy And happy holidays, everybody, and have an absolutely wonderful new year.